On May 13, 1948, the day before the establishment of the State of Israel, 19 years before the Six-Day War, a massacre at Kibbutz Kafar Etzion etched the village into the Israeli consciousness. It became a symbol of loss and longing, the sacrifice that created a nation but left it incomplete. Kafar Etzion was a reminder that in the sweetness of independence, there was yet still an open wound in its very heart that would, at some point, need to be restored. Kafar Etzion began as a small farming community in 1927. By 1943, it was a religious kibbutz of Orthodox Jews who had escaped the Holocaust. Three more settlements were built in close proximity, creating a block of Jewish territory in the hills south of Jerusalem. This block was called Gush Etzion. Its strategic location along a major road made for tension between the Jews, local Arabs, and the British military that oversaw Palestine. By May of 1948, the raging civil war between Jews and Arabs over the partition of Palestine meant open warfare over the four settlements. Hundreds of soldiers had already died coming to Gush Etzion's defense. The 160 Jews and 50 children there were outgunned, so most of the women and all of the children were quickly evacuated to Jerusalem, including a five-year-old boy named Hanan Porat. On May 12th, the Arab forces descended on Kafar Etzion, and by the next day, the 13th, the battle was over. 129 Jews were killed. Historians have debated ever since how many of them died in combat and how many were outright executed after surrendering. Their bodies, though, were left out in the open. It would be a year and a half before Jordan would allow Israeli officials to even pick up the bones for burial. The three nearby Jewish settlements also fell, the survivors taken prisoner, and the whole block of kibbutzim raised to the ground. The area became occupied by Jordan, just over the line from Israel. For the next 19 years, Kafar Etzion's survivors would gather on a hilltop on the Israeli side where they could see where the Etzion block had stood. You see, they told their children like Hanan Porat, you see what was taken from us, how we sacrificed for the country? They mourned the massacre's victims and took to heart the words of Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion. Quote, I do not know of a more glorious, tragic, and heroic struggle in all the valiant battles of the Israel Defense Forces than that of Gush Etzion. Their sacrifice, more than any other war effort, saved Jerusalem. The gratitude of Jewish history goes first and foremost to the fighters of Gush Etzion. End quote. In the national mythos, Jewish Jerusalem survived because of the sacrifice of Gush Etzion. By 1967, the five-year-old Hanan Porat had grown into a 24-year-old paratrooper. He was part of the unit that liberated the old city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. The scholar Yossi Klein Halevi quoted him as saying of that moment, quote, We are writing the next chapter of the Bible, end quote. As the war ended with the West Bank in Israeli hands, Hanan Parat looked south towards Kfar Zion and decided it was time to return home. It would be a personal redemption mirrored on the Jewish people as a whole. So last episode, we talked about Israel's first settlement after the Six-Day War. Meirom Golan, a secular, socialist kibbutz of the left, founded in July in the northern tip of the country. Today we're looking at the second settlement, Kfar Etzion, established in September in the West Bank, just south of Jerusalem. In contrast to Meirom Golan, this settlement was associated with the religious Zionism movement, marrying the Zionist imperative to settle the land with the religious necessity to possess it. 
So that's today's episode, a landmark one. The 150th episode of Jew I Don't Know. Very cool. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. When Israel's security cabinet met on June 19th to decide what to do with the territories it had captured, they kicked the can down the road on the West Bank. They agreed to offer Sinai back to Egypt and the Golan Heights back to Syria in exchange for peace. But with the West Bank, the strategic interior of the country and the historic home of the Jewish people, there were too many competing ideas. Keep all of it, keep none of it, slice it up, but which pieces? The Prime Minister, Levi Eshkol, wanted to keep enough of the land necessary to prevent another Arab invasion, but not so much that Israel would have to absorb hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. Because that would dilute Israel's Jewish majority, which in turn would threaten Israel as a Jewish state, an absolute deal-breaker. In the meantime, the West Bank was wide open. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis poured across the line, eager to explore the ancient Jewish cities and holy sites that had been closed off to them for almost 20 years. And Arabs went in the other direction, to visit family, find work, or also just to see what the other side looked like. Moshe Dayam, the Minister of Defense, was nurturing his plans for what had been called the Enlightened or Benign Occupation, a kind of economic union that would maximize Arab autonomy and minimize Israeli military intrusion into their daily lives. In Dayan's famous formulation, an Arab would go from birth to death without ever having to encounter an Israeli government official. Everything would be administered from the background, with local Arab leaders doing the upfront work. But as we've seen, this enlightened occupation was still an occupation, and it was chaotic. Policies thrown together, arbitrary decisions, military rule that naturally emphasized intrusive security, every officer and government official trying to implement and impose his own vision and strategy in the absence of a coherent plan from the government. And then, over the summer of 1967, there was a significant development that dramatically changed things on the ground, and we'll get into this more next episode. But the Arab countries met in Khartoum, Sudan on September 1st, 1967. They formulated what became known as the Three No's. No peace with Israel, no negotiation with Israel, and no recognition of Israel. There's some nuance here, which we'll get into next time, but what this meant was that Israel was stuck with the occupied territories. From the Israeli government's point of view, even though they were willing to trade land for peace, the Arabs weren't, and so there wasn't a way to give back the land. Israel was going to have to figure out how to administer the occupation in what was now an indefinite and uncertain time frame. So Israel, whether it wanted to or not, was stuck with the occupied territories and the Palestinians living there. But it had no grand vision for what to do with them that would inform decision-making, no unifying strategy to make coherent governing policies. And so if you were someone with a grand vision, the gate was wide open for you to start corralling officials and putting facts on the ground. And that grand strategy began with re-establishing Kfar Etzion.
So I haven't done an actual data analysis on this, this is merely anecdotal from browsing through my home library. But when you look at Israeli history books from, say, 15 or 20 years ago, you don't find Hanan Porat's name anywhere. But nowadays, no history of Israel in the 60s and 70s could possibly leave him out. Hanan had been evacuated from Kfar Etzion as a five-year-old. Then no one in that community ever let him or his peers forget both the personal loss and the central role that the kibbutz had played in Israeli independence. Porat understood that not only had he and his family been torn from their home and those who remained massacred, but also that the sacrifice had been borne by religious Jews. It was religious Jews who had saved Jerusalem, held up as the exemplary of heroism and sacrifice by none other than David Ben-Gurion, in a country that worshipped the secular values of Zionism, this put Kafar Zion community on a pedestal. And then, in 1967, Hanan Porat saved Jerusalem a second time as a paratrooper in the unit that liberated the old city in the Temple Mount. By then, he was also steeped in the worldview of the religious Zionist movement. And this was articulated by the two rabbis we had mentioned in the first episode of this season, Abraham Isaac Cook and his son, Zvi Yehuda Cook. Just a few weeks before the Six-Day War, it was the son, Zvi Yehuda Cook, who famously lamented the loss of historic Jewish territory in the West Bank. Quote, Where is our Hebron? Have we forgotten her? Where is our Shechem, our Jericho? Where? All that lies beyond the Jordan, each and every clod of earth, every region, hill, valley, every plot of land that is part of Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. Have we the right to give up even one grain of the land of God? End quote. Religious Zionists and many Israelis today don't refer to this area as the West Bank, but by its historic Jewish names, Judea and Samaria. And the line dividing Israel from Judea and Samaria, that is, Israel from the West Bank, that became known as the Green Line. Religious Zionism, as articulated by the Cook rabbis, rests on a fairly simple formula. Jews can be responsible for bringing about divine redemption for all of humanity. That redemption requires Jews living freely and securely in their ancient homeland as promised and articulated by God in the Hebrew Bible. The return of the Jews to their land is God's will, and while the secular state of Israel can help bring it about, the state cannot deny this right. As Yehuda Cook said, the state does not have the right to give up even one grain. The Israeli journalist Gershom Gornberg writes that Hanan Porat thus found that his personal dream of returning to Kafar Etzion also fit into this greater vision of the Jewish nation returning to the whole of the historic land of Israel. It was a unification of religion and nationalism that would find expression in the drive to settle the newly occupied territories. Religious Zionists saw themselves as the new vanguard of the Zionist pioneers of old. In their view, lefty socialist Zionism had run out of steam. It lacked big new ideas and an inspirational message. The Six-Day War propelled religious Zionism forward. They now had a table on which to implement their grand messianic vision of Jewish redemption in the ancient homeland. Now, not every religious Zionist linked this idea with settlement. The Israeli Orthodox rabbi Yeshayahu Leibowitz insisted that the purpose of Zionism was, quote, to liberate Jews from being ruled by the Gentiles, end quote. And in his view, that had already been achieved by the establishment of Israel in 1948, so the Jews already had the land that they needed. He warned that confusing the secular state with a religious imperative was a form of idolatry, 
because it mixed the ideas of the sacred with the everyday concerns of the state. Likewise, the notion that the land is uniquely holy to the Jews, based on the stories of the Torah. He thought this was better mooted as a question of history, to which then the Palestinians also had a historical claim. All of this added up to an opposition to occupation, which he worried would lead to violence and immorality in the name of religion. The historian Daniel Gordis writes that, quote, For Leibowitz, the principal religious obligation that flowed from the victory in June of 1967 was for Israel to save its soul. To do that, he insisted, Israel needed to withdraw from the territories it had captured, so Israelis would not be imposing their rule on a foreign population, end quote. But these other religious Zionists had a very compelling vision. They organized sympathetic officials in the army and the government to advance their plans to re-establish the Etzion block of settlements on the original land, now back in Israel's hands. Hanan Porat made it as far as the prime minister's office, where an ambiguous conversation gave him all the permission he felt he needed to turn the dream into reality. In September of 1967, the top lawyer for Israel's foreign ministry sent a memo to Prime Minister Levi Eshkol on the legality of Israel's occupation. He concluded that any civilian settlement of the occupied territories would contravene the Geneva Conventions, which we discussed last episode. Article 49 prohibits, prohibits an occupying power from settling its own citizens in the occupied territory or forcibly deporting any of the native residents. But others in the Israeli government had an objection to this. The West Bank had been illegally occupied by the Kingdom of Jordan from 1948 to 1967, yet Jordan had moved its own citizens and Palestinian refugees there without any international outcry. Before that, the West Bank had been part of the British colony in Palestine, and before that, the Ottoman Empire, which no longer existed. There had never been any official agreements about the West Bank's permanent status. And thus, Israel argued, it wasn't officially occupied territory as would fall under the Geneva Conventions. No one owned it. It would not be illegal to settle its citizens there. Levi Eshkol was a man divided by all these different arguments, ideas, plans, and policies swirling around him. Quote, a walking parliament, end quote, in Gershom Gorenberg's words. Eshkol gave a fair hearing to everyone and everything and wanted to find the right formula or land that would ensure Israel's security against another Arab invasion while also avoiding the absorption of too many Palestinians. In his earlier political career, he had been the head of Israel's settlement activities, so he felt the pull of applying that endeavor to the new territories. But he was also mindful of the geopolitical realities, the opposition to settlement by the United States, the Arab rejection of peace and negotiation, and the competing views amongst his own ministers. So when Hanan Porat sat before him at the end of September 1967, Levi Eshkol wasn't sure what to make of this passionate kid with the big ideas. Yossi Klein Halevi recounted the conversation. Eshkol asked Porat what he wanted, calling Porat Kinderlach, a Yiddish term of endearment for children. Porat said he wanted, quote, to go up, end quote. So, Kinderlach, said Eshkol, if you want to go up, then go. Porat explained that in 10 days it would be Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and, quote, we very much want to pray in the place where our parents prayed, end quote. 
So if you want to pray, said Eshkol, then pray. The ambiguity of this conversation is such that anyone could read whatever they wanted into it. Eshkol did not give Hanan Porat permission to establish a settlement, but he didn't deny him either. He didn't encourage Porat to go, but he also didn't kick him out of his office. Did he just not get it? Was he not taking this seriously? Or was he just so indecisive that he just really didn't have an answer? Hanan Porat and his friends took the prime minister at face value. Two days later, they brought their jeeps and buses and mattresses and lean-tos to Kafar Etzion, complete with a picture of Rabbi Zvi Yehuda Cook. The first settlement in the West Bank was up and running. Kifar Sion was a huge hit with the Israeli public. It was this incredibly powerful symbol of the children of the heroes of the fallen kibbutzim returning to their parents' homes. This wasn't land being seized or Palestinians forcibly deported. Instead, Jews had returned to land that was rightfully theirs, the correction of an injustice and a fierce demonstration of the kind of redemption that religious Zionists saw possible in the newly liberated lands of Judea and Samaria. The historian Tom Segev quotes the newspaper Ma'ariv, quote, It was not as foreign occupiers that they were settling on the land of Gush Etzion, but rather as children coming again to their borders, end quote. And so, once again, a fact had been created on the ground that Israel couldn't ignore. What Hanan Porath had achieved could not be taken away by a government that was in the throes of indecision about what to do with the West Bank. And so, even in the midst of all the arguments against settling the land, from the Geneva Convention to the United States' opposition, from the foreign ministry's legal memo to the divisions in his own cabinet, Levi Eshkol relented, and Porat and his friends had official approval. And once again, Israel made use of a loophole in the Geneva Conventions that allows for temporary military outposts on occupied land. Just like with Merom Golan up in the north, Kifar Etzion was labeled a military outpost. Everyone knew this was a polite fiction. Kifar Etzion was permanent. However the future borders of Israel were to be drawn, they would surely include the Etzion block. According to Gershom Gorenberg, six months later, in early 1968, Levi Eshkol announced that there were ten of these military outposts in the territories, with seven more approved, for a total of about 800 Israelis. The Grand Settlement Project was off and running, and being led by the religious Zionists. Although the settlements had wide support in Israel, not everyone was on board. In August of 1967, a 28-year-old up-and-coming writer published an article titled The Defense Minister and Lebensraum. Lebensraum is a German word meaning living space that was infamously used by the Nazis to describe their designs on Europe. The writer was a kibbutznik named Amos Oz. He had served in the war and was reacting to a speech by the Minister of Defense, Moshe Dayan, who suggested rejecting the idea of trading land for peace. Dayan had used the Hebrew phrase for Lebensraum, living space, to which Oz reminded his readers of its recent usage. Quote, Living space means one thing, disenfranchising the foreigner, the inferior savage, and making place for the superior and the civilized, the powerful. End quote. That was not, Oz said, why Israel fought. Quote, Israel's living space is entirely before it. 
the wastelands of the Galilee and the Negev. We have no living space in the west bank of the Jordan, because it is populated by a nation living on its land, even though it was currently a nation routed in battle. End quote. Oz understood that Israel couldn't withdraw without a secure peace, whether it be a month or a year or a generation from now. But he called for Israel to remember that it was an occupier, not a redeemer or a liberator. Quote, the shorter the occupation, the better for us, because even an imposed occupation is destructive. Even an enlightened and humane and liberal occupation is an occupation. I fear the quality of the seeds we sow in the near future in the hearts of the occupied. More than that, I fear for the seed that is being sown in the heart of the occupiers. And the first signs are already recognizable now on the fringes of society. End quote. Those words would form the basis of Israel's left-wing movement in the decades to come. Amos Oz would become Israel's most celebrated writer and the grandfather of the left-wing peace movement. Oz and others were deeply concerned about the corrupting influence of occupation, not just on the Palestinians, but on Israel's soul. They warned that occupation would force society to develop a superior attitude towards the Arabs and require the use of more and more violence to uphold it. Annexing the West Bank, he wrote, was not the solution, certainly not without the approval of those who lived there. What we have here is the beginnings of the left-right division that would define Israeli politics from the late 1960s to the early 2000s. The left favored trading land for peace. The right saw a hostile Arab world that would never do so. Increasingly, the religious Zionist movement adopted the right, as the secular became associated with the left. Over the decades, both sides would find causes to be proven right and wrong, to experience successes and setbacks, to discover that there was actually considerable movement along the land for peace spectrum. And in the meantime, as Oz and others pointed out, there were the Arabs themselves, who were also active agents in this post-war realignment. For the Arabs after the Six-Day War, shock and humiliation soon gave way to anger and defiance. The Arab states debated how to relate to Israel in an effort to reclaim their lost territories. Some pursued negotiation, others rearmed for another war. Palestinian society developed a stronger identity in the face of occupation, and terrorist organizations carried out escalating campaigns of violence. Meanwhile, the Six-Day War rolled over into an extended period of grinding conflict known as the War of Attrition. All that is next time. This was a milestone episode number 150. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please consider a donation of any amount to help keep it going. Huge, huge gratitude to those who have donated so far. If you chose to list your name, you can see it on my website at jewidonknow.com slash donate. My email is jewidonknowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lahitraot. See you later.